0: You're listening to In Network, Nordic's podcast series where we explore healthcare and technology with experts from around the globe. Hello, and welcome to the In Network podcast feature, Making Rounds. I'm Nordic's head of thought leadership, Dr. Jerome Pagani. I recently sat down with Nordic's chief medical officer, Dr. Craig Joseph. Craig is a health IT guru with over two decades of healthcare experience as a board-certified pediatrician and clinical informaticist. Greg has provided clinical expertise in the building of Epic's foundation system and assisted in EHR implementations and optimizations for healthcare systems across the U.S. and Europe. He also provides comedic relief on the Designing for Health podcast, an in-network feature where we talk to experts about applying the principles of human-centered design to healthcare. In today's podcast, Dr. Joseph and I talk about some key aspects of what we at Nordic call the big squeeze, the myriad factors affecting healthcare providers across the health ecosystem. We share our views on disintermediation, Digital crumbs, risk of increased access to personal data, big tech, and how decentralized and team based care are the future of healthcare. Time to make rounds. Hey, Craig. Hey, Jerome. Good talking to you
1: today. I'm looking forward to this conversation slash debate slash conversation.
0: Quite excellent. Me too. So we've talked a lot as a company about the big squeeze, which is that confluence of factors that are affecting healthcare systems right now. And that's things like the clinical tsunami, labor pains, and market forces, which are making it harder for them to respond at a time when they need to be sort of the most nimble and innovative. There's sort of an additional factor there that we haven't talked a lot about yet, and that's really the risk of disintermediation. Jerome, I don't want to be
1: disintermediated. And I think Possibly a lot of people and organizations in healthcare don't wanna be disintermediated. It sounds painful and um, something to be avoided.
0: Well, it could be like disimpaction, which may be unpleasant at first, but really great once it's done, really great.
1: Thank you, Jerome.
0: (laughs) One of the ways that health enterprises have looked to become innovative in sort of a, a light and lean way is to really use the best of their clinical expertise and use the best of the expertise from the tech world to become a little savvier in the way they use data to inform clinical and operational processes. So we thought it would be interesting to kind of have a conversation around what do those data look like? What are some areas where I think there's clearer promise and maybe some areas that might be fraught with peril? Yeah,
1: well, I I think it makes a lot of sense We're talking about population health. How much data can you get on a, a group of people to say that, hey, they all share the same problem. They're all lacking a certain test or not getting their preventative care as well as they could. And to be able to target them for outreach as opposed to the vast majority of patients who are on track and and don't need those interventions. And that makes a lot of sense to me. So using data to help patients makes sense. I get a little bit concerned when we start talking about using data to limit patients' access or using even more data, depending on who you are in the healthcare ecosystem, for what might benefit you as an organization, but may not benefit
0: the people that you're taking care of or that you want to take care of or that you should be taking care of. Let's back up for a second and talk about kind of that delicate balance between being able to help people and respect their privacy for a second. So you brought up the pop health example, and you know one thing that the research community has had to grapple with for quite some time is the ability to share de-identified data in a way that's specific enough that it's useful for furthering our knowledge about a given condition or what treatments may work and for what populations. And doing that in a way that is still safe enough that individuals can't be identified on you know, even a zip code level basis, right? So I think one of the risks has been that when you combine data from lots of different sources, you're able to slice very narrowly. And even when the data de identified to a certain extent, there's a risk that you're able to go in and because of the number of factors that you have really slice down exactly who an individual is. And so that's one of the risks. But one of the promises is, as you mentioned, being able to do things on a population level, when you sort of extract away and have a really clear idea of how to define a subpopulation. Sure, and I
1: just to you know put a finer point on it. I think that makes a lot of sense, and so you know certainly we want to take data from different sources, pooling it together to make the best picture that we can, that representing the patients that that we're taking care of, either in the clinic, in the hospital, or as a, a population as a whole. And as you mentioned, certainly there's a risk whenever you put a bunch of different data points together that there could be abuse. And as you mentioned, if someone's got a rare disease and we know that they live in a certain zip code, it's possible and it's been shown that with enough computing power and, and uh, enough data that that person could be identified and then all the associated uh, data points with them could be identified. Certainly that's a risk. I think that's a, uh, in general a small risk for a big benefit to most of the folks that are in that clinical pool and uh, that doesn't worry me too much. I, I think that certainly research organizations and clinical organizations are, are have an ethical responsibility to minimize that. You'll never get rid of all risk. There's always going to be some small risk there of a, a privacy leak. But anything that we can do to, to make that safer is a good thing. Meanwhile, the benefit is so obvious that, hey, we can now slice and dice our patient population and focus interventions on those that need it and not spend our time, money, resources, trying to tell people who are already doing what we think is the right thing that they should do the right
0: thing. And this isn't a problem that's unique to healthcare, right? So if you look at things like the commercial genomics industry, right? So we know that folks have gone through and used those databases to identify people who have committed crimes in the past. What most of the companies are offering at this point is sort of entertainment value genomics data. So I guess that's the benefit. But then the risk is that if your data could be used to find you or someone related to you who may have committed a serious crime in the past, and that's that's one of those examples of being identified from data that you provide even at your consent. Retail organizations have long been trying to gather enough information about you and your buying patterns to personalize your experience with them, personalize the way they market to you, and do a better job of driving your consumption behavior.
1: Sure, and outside of healthcare, even related to healthcare, we know a decade ago that organizations were sending coupons for baby products to uh, women who sometimes didn't even know that they were pregnant. Yeah. And so that, that magic has happened, and that, that uh, secret you know has been out of, the, uh, out of the bottle for a long time, and so not much to do to get that genie back in there. That's a done deal. What I'm concerned about is kind of the direction that we might be going in, where you didn't actually make a purchase or you didn't actually say it was okay to get my genomic information, but that, that information about you, once it's compiled, puts you at risk of of not being able to get certain services or being uh, you know
0: priced out of different options in life. Just as an aside, an anecdote, my, my daughter was born about 10 years ago. And as a joke, when she was born, I, uh, on a very popular social media platform, said that her name was Shadrach, which was not actually her name, but uh, was meant to be amusing to my friends and family. And two days later, an ad showed up on that social media platform platform calling me Shadrach and offering me a a Chevy pickup truck that they thought I might like. So all the little digital crumbs that we leave are uh, long been gathered up, and and folks try to use that for better insights about you. As you've alluded to, there are clear cases, sort of bright line cases, where you look at that risk-benefit relationship, and clinical care is one of them, where, yeah, there's a risk of being identified, there's a risk of giving out information that is very personal, There's a risk even when you're consenting to not necessarily understanding everything that goes into or could be done with those data, particularly if there are clauses in there about what third parties can do with those data. But the, the benefit to the clinical care that you could receive seems pretty clear. And this is a bright-lighting example where that risk-benefit ratio goes in the right direction. Yeah, well, let's talk about one that's maybe not necessarily directly related,
1: but will lead to a healthcare situation. Let's talk about auto insurance, Jerome. So traditionally, uh, some of us pay more for auto insurance than others. And the insurers base that on information that they have collected about us. So some of that information includes how many tickets we've had, how old we are, how long we've been driving, what kind of car we drive, what color car we drive. Red cars generally are more expensive to insure than not red cars. We could talk about the the psychology of that for for some fun. But now uh, you have another option. You can voluntarily give up significant information about how you drive to the insurance company Presumably to prove to them that you're a good driver and deserve a discount. So you put a little fob into your car's computer and that then can communicate with your insurance company. It tells them how fast you're driving, tells them how quickly you stop sometimes, how often you're potentially driving in a what they would consider a dangerous way. How many times
0: you get flipped off? It does not tell oh, them see, that that would be to me that's the marker. That would be a good thing. That's but, like a biomarker for health cars computer how well you drive does not <laughs> does, well does not tell them that i'm not going to argue
1: with you or it's engage it's with an indirect you direct
0: measure but it's clearly a marker
1: of how responsible i you're mean driving. that makes sense we'd have to take into account the state and city that you live in
0: the auto insurance example is a, there are real life ties to health insurance though there are companies that are offering pay as you live kinds of policies where if you're willing to surrender data about your activity levels your shopping habits, maybe even genetic information, so they have something, some idea of what conditions you're predisposed to have, might be. All of that can then get you a reduced rate on your health insurance. It sure can, it can totally reduce your rate,
1: or it could Jack it up. make it astronomically high. Yeah. And uh, one of my concerns about insurance specifically, whether it be health or auto, is that this is supposed to be a pooled resource, meaning some of us are gonna need it, most of us are not gonna need it, and the insurance company's job is to try to figure out as best they can with the limited information that they have, how they stay in business while making those bets, right? When we get auto insurance or life insurance, but let's talk about life insurance. When we get life insurance, we're making a bet with the insurance company for a specific term, our bet is that we're going to die, and they're going to owe us a lot of, owe our ears, owe our hairs, um, a lot of money, and uh, their bet is that they won't, and and that's fine. But when it comes to healthcare and health insurance, giving them all of this information, they might say that, hey, your risk of requiring Services healthcare services is very high and either a we won't insure you or b If we're required to insure you we are going to make it so very expensive that you couldn't possibly afford it And from an insurance company standpoint, I totally understand why they would want to do that But I think the problem is that this is a, a resource that I absolutely need at least in the United States I need health insurance, and this is not an optional uh, exercise for me, and so I am concerned that if a health insurance company specifically gets access to tons of information, especially without my permission, that they will um, do what I consider to be the wrong thing.
0: And it wasn't all that long ago where using information about your past medical history to help determine prices was completely loud, was totally fine. And so for folks that had quote-unquote pre-existing conditions, they might easily have been priced out of the marketplace. And I think that's part of the concern that you're expressing there, that we could go back to that.
1: That is not only part of it, it is the entire concern. It was a horrible system that we had where people with pre-existing conditions or things that might lead to pre-existing conditions were priced out of the marketplace. Very very slippery slopey, yeah.
0: So I, I think probably one of the reasons that you're raising this is that there's been some news fairly recently that there are players in the big tech world, for instance, who are thinking about getting into the health insurance market as well.
1: And leveraging some of this information, again, information
0: that that they didn't get specific or need specific information. So what's the, what's the complaint, that they're operating more efficiently than a traditional healthcare system because they happen to have access to a wider range of data? The complaint is that
1: I will not be able to get health care or someone who has either a pre-existing condition or is deemed likely to get some sort of condition that will require a big payout from a payer, an insurance company, that um, I won't be able to get that service in the future from them. And I understand that their interest, I totally understand that they, as an entity, are trying to uh, minimize the number of people that are going to need money from them and maximize the amount of um, money that they can get in terms of costs from uh,
0: perfectly healthy people. That's always been their goal. So if I understand the risk correctly, it's really around them skimming the cream off of a population, the folks that are least likely in their data-fueled, insight-generated experience to develop a serious health condition, and so therefore will be cheapest to insure, skim those folks off and then drive away, with the threat of high premiums, anyone who they deem more risky. So in essence, what they're doing is they're changing the risk pool of the population. They'll tend to pull off folks who are higher SES, have more disposable income, who tend to be healthier anyway. And what's gonna happen to the risk pools for all of the other insurance companies in the country is that they'll be left with a now shifted profile towards a more risky population we're pretty clear about when we get into behaviors that seem like they are not beneficial to any of the insured. And the question is, how do we stay within that upper end of the gray zone into that sort of bright line zone of there's clear benefit here, but not how do we put guardrails in place so that we don't end up going back to a days when pre-existing conditions or the new data insight generated equivalent? are used to discriminate against folks who may end up costing more to care for?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't have the answer, right? So I, I think that there is this um, spectrum, and, and somewhere on the spectrum, there's probably a fairly sweet spot where companies who need to stay in business have the means to do so, but also to provide the service, the care, the financing for health that folks need uh, to the people that need it.
0: I mean, I think we have some idea because we're already seeing those models in place where, as we mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, we're seeing that combination of the partnership where the, there's a health system that's bringing the best clinical expertise that they have and combining it with the best data and data infrastructure and analytics expertise from the big tech world and doing that in a way that enables the two of them together to sort of form not only a partnership where they're bringing that into play, but then maybe that payer piece as well. And so you can end up with things that look like a clinical and big tech provider who ends up being a pay vidor, or they pull in a traditional payer and then it becomes a three legged stool where each is bringing the best expertise from their area. And this is one of those ways to get a value-based care kind of model without having to have that sort of mandated, without that being a top-down legislative or regulatory type action.
1: If it's just the payers, then yeah, there are there's great risk for them maximizing their fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders by skimming off the top and, and not offering insurance to those who uh, might actually need it. But when you combine the payers with the providers, both the physicians and the hospitals, then you're really talking about value-based care, where everyone will be covered because that's how value-based care works. But at the same time, you're really leveraging all of those excellent data points to improve the care of everyone and saving money for all three parties, the,
0: the payer, the physicians and the hospitals just to back up within any sector there's danger of combining data from other places in on the retail side there's the danger that combining health data with what they know about you and your habits of spending could lead to things like marketing more directly to you health-related products at a time when you're really sort of vulnerable and and may not be making best decisions financial decisions Healthcare tends to be very mission-driven. There is, at the end of the day, sort of that idea that you're doing what's best for the patient, regardless of whether or not they even have insurance, right? So less there. And so I think one of the things that I hear you saying is that one of the ways to stick with the better angels of our nature is through these kinds of partnerships where there are overlapping but somewhat competing interests that are joined in such a way that the patient is still becomes the primary thing. And yes, there are considerations around uh, making money or delivering services in a particular way or whatever the other missions are, but combining data across groups that have overlapping but somewhat competing interests may be a way out of avoiding the sort of very clear on the the dark side of the line. Yeah,
1: I, I, I like your approach of trying to do good. I certainly respect the fact that there's no margin There's no mission. And so whether you're a health insurance company, a group of uh, physicians, or a group of uh, healthcare systems, you definitely need to earn a profit. But um, what we should try to be doing is all rowing in the same direction, using the technology that we can to maximize both health and profit, right? The benefit to the patients, who ultimately are the reason that you're in business, will if the system brings you more reward for the more benefit you bring to uh, patients, then then we're, we're all going to win. However, if that's not the case in the system that we devise, incentivizes uh, any of those groups to um, to not do the right thing financially, then, boy, I, that's tough to be a corporate leader under those
0: circumstances, right? Well, I mean, if they're a publicly traded company, they have a fiduciary responsibility to maximize their profit, right? Absolutely. So there's nothing wrong with introducing that element together with something that's very mission-driven and patient-focused to make sure that the care being delivered is essential and as efficient as possible. So this is one of the the ways that we can get to the place we'd like to get to, which is the efficient and affordable delivery of high-quality care that leads to high-quality outcomes. So I think the question becomes, in these kind of relationships, where do we see health going? Where there's a strong clinical group partnered with a tech group, partnered with a payer, what are the promises there for for how the delivery of clinical care could be changed?
1: I think that there's lots of potential. Obviously, it's it's what we do every day is to try to help healthcare organizations provide better care uh, while also staying in business by being able to pay their folks and and to build buildings and to to buy equipment that they need. I think it's important to make sure that our incentives are aligned, and that I think that's the the major thing that concerns me is when incentives get out of line, when the push to, um, you know, uh, maximize your uh, return while not trying to at the same time maximize the the care that you're providing, whether that be for a small number of patients or for a large population, that's where we get into some danger areas. And, And as long as we're kind of going in with our eyes wide open,
0: I think it's all a great thing. So there are a whole host of technologies that are going to change the way care is delivered. And some of these have really gotten a boost from the necessities driven by the COVID-19 pandemic. And things like telehealth, remote patient monitoring, remote patient therapeutics, digital therapeutics, things like that, mean that the reach of the clinician has become longer. And the ability to do more than just consult, but actually to monitor, diagnose, and eventually treat remotely is is only going to grow and so you know we have that whole perspective around decentralized care which is talking about the places where care is going to be delivered are going to grow the number of people delivering care is going to need to grow and so the number of partnerships that you are going to need to make sure that you can be an effective part of the healthcare ecosystem is going to grow and so that really requires a strategy for thinking about not only what your click and mortar approach is you know what your physical versus virtual capabilities are, but also how you are going to partner to connect, combine, and share those data that you need to provide the best care that you can, and also enable the other stakeholders within that kind of decentralized care health health ecosystem do the same. Yeah, That's our vision for, one of our visions for how the future of care is going to change. It's going to be changed by those technologies that we mentioned, and that's going to require You know, as those technologies come on board, we're gonna need new operational processes, new supply chain, we're gonna need new clinical workflows, we're gonna need to think about how we use people's time most effectively. You know, we hear all the time about the need to have people operating at the top of their licenses, for instance, and we see some examples like the command center approach and managing by exception being combined in a way that allows a relatively small number of staff members to take care of a relatively large patient population. And typically those are nurses. And then they only kick things up to the doctors. And there's an even smaller number of doctors. They only kick things up to the doctors when there are things that go outside of bounds. And then there can be an intervention. And so I think these technologies become very powerful from an efficiency standpoint and allow us to, if we are thinking flexibly about how to use them and not just trying to as I think we initially did with the EHR, just digitize our paper records for not thinking about how to just weave technology into existing workflows. We can actually be really creative about the way that care gets delivered and what that means in terms of the patient experience and the kinds of outcomes that they're able to have.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So I, th- I think the idea of team-based care and everyone working at the top of their license makes complete sense. And, and that's something that we've been, in healthcare in the United States, really pushing for for a long time. Sometimes we run into regulatory problems, rarely we run into technology problems, sometimes we run into legal issues. However, that's definitely the direction that we're all going in. I think most people are very comfortable with the technology, both in their house and they expect to see it in healthcare, care. And so that's not a problem. I think one issue is certainly going to be that some folks have access to the technology and others don't. And so we need to kind of overcome that gulf where you can send um, one group of people home with a, a technology package that they just plug in and, and can quickly uh, get online. And others, they don't have some of the tools that we need to work uh, when that goes home. And so they'll need even more resources. and so. Looking at the, at the bigger picture, I think taking into account all the different diverse A, viewpoints, and, and B, backgrounds that our, our patients have is going to be essential if we're going to be successful in, in taking some of these patients uh, out of the uh, hospital system or out of the high risk area and, and, and moving them to a, a, a low risk. Whether we're talking about inpatient or outpatient, the risk and the reward remain the same.
0: I think you touched on something really great there, which is this idea that we need to be designing whatever systems that we create for this future of healthcare that we're talking about with the people delivering and receiving care in mind. So, this is a nice tie back to that idea that we have to make healthcare work for the humans who are involved in the care and receipt, the delivery and receipt of care. We should make healthcare work for humans. It's been a great conversation, Craig. Thanks for uh, spending some time to chat this through. It's been a pleasure. I love talking about how technology and
1: healthcare can work together in positive ways while minimizing the negative effects.
0: Excellent. Thanks for tuning in. We hoped you enjoyed today's episode. Check back for more episodes of Making Rounds wherever you listen to podcasts or on NordicGlobal.com. Till next time, we'll see you in network. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five star rating and a review. This helps others find the podcast as well.